I'm going to read John chapter 16, verses uh, 4b through 15. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you, but now I'm going to him who sent me, and none of you asks me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I did not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will prove the world wrong concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will no longer see and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment, because the ruler of the world, of this world, is judged. I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all the truth, for he will not speak of his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine, therefore I said, that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. And good morning, everyone. Welcome to Hiawatha Church. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If you walked in late, um, welcome. Glad you guys are here. And if you're visiting especially, I want to welcome you today. Uh, we are, uh, as you just heard from, we're in a series right now on the Gospel of John that we're going to continue today. We'll break next Sunday for just kind of a special Christmas sermon uh, that morning, and I, I don't know if Jess mentioned, but that service will be shorter too in case your parents are wondering um, about 90 minutes, uh, which I guess we don't always go to even on normal Sundays, but it'll be more like uh, 55-ish. That's very specific. <laughs> no promises. I don't know why I said that. Don't hold me to that. It probably, probably will not be 55 minutes. It'll probably be something else other than that, um, but around there. So, <clears throat> but I'd uh, love to have you if you're in town. We'd love to have you for a Christmas service. We don't usually get to do that, so it's kind of a fun thing. Um, all right, well, we are, as you just heard again, are in John right now. Just to kind of recap where we're at, we are in the farewell discourse uh, which, uh, of John, which is uh, chapters 14 to 17, roughly. Jesus' arrest uh, is imminent. His crucifixion is imminent. He knows this. He's orchestrating the whole thing, actually, and that'll become more clear as the, the chapters kind of go on here. And other, the other three Gospels, too, kind of uh, help to tell this story in their own unique way. Uh, there are so many kind of points where Jesus could take this off-ramp to this whole thing. Um, Even aside from the fact that he's God, he can just sort of say it and speak it into his uh, release from this uh, predicament uh, into existence. But even aside from that, just there's so many opportunities where he could just kind of disappear and or not go to Jerusalem, uh, which is the the biggest of things. Why would you go there when your basically principal enemies are there? Those kind of things. But he's been orchestrating this whole thing in order to die on Passover. That's a really key symbolic uh, thing that we'll touch on later uh, in, in the series. But again, um, this is, all this is imminent. Uh, it's, it's right before, right at the Last Supper, right after that. He's talking to his disciples. He knows that his time has come, and he's, he has some things to say. And so that's why there's a darker tinge to it, but mixed with in just very in, uh, intentional purpose and meaning. He's basically saying all things are now coming to a head. Everything that's been written beforehand in the Old Testament has been about this moment. Uh, which is why so much Old Testament allusions are, are here, especially when it's on the cross and dying. Uh, we'll make a big deal of that uh, in, in the coming weeks, too, after the new year. But um, 
So that's kind of where we're at. There's a lot to say about the book other than that, of course, too. But if you have not read John before or if you're just coming for the first time, that's kind of where we are to kind of get your sort of chronological and uh, literary bearings here. Um, that's, that's where we are in the story. So um, three sections today, kind of break this down, kind of top to bottom as though we're working from top to the bottom. I want to start with the first few verses and then we'll kind of see uh, uh, where we go from there. So picking up in verse 4, actually today is called, if It's Better If I Go. That's, uh, so the words of Christ, which you just heard, um, we'll look at that here in just a minute. But um, the first section, though, is basically Jesus saying to his disciples, don't be sad, uh, this, this is all part of the plan, uh, picking up in verse 4. So um, he, he's saying that all of this talk about his death and his departure and the idea of sending the Spirit uh, are, 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 are part of the plan. Uh, and, and he actually says here in verse 4, he did not say these things at the beginning uh, when he was with them because he was with them. So the idea there being that his presence sufficed. And so when Jesus is talking about leaving and sending the Spirit, he's saying, at the beginning I didn't say these things to you because I was there with you. But, but now I'm leaving, uh, if that kind of uh, makes sense. So uh, he's about to be arrested, and so he's saying these things to say, I'm leaving, I'm departing, I'm going to die, but I'm going to send the Spirit. Um, but that's, there's a reason why I didn't say that earlier on. But now he's going to die. And they're all starting to understand. In verse 5 here, no one's asking, where are you going? Because they know where he's going. They're starting to get it. They're not asking him questions about what does this mean like they were earlier. They're not speaking because they know. They get it. You could probably hear a pin drop in the room uh, at this point. No one's speaking. No one's responding. No one's asking questions or no one's putting their foot in their mouth like Peter does so often. Uh, we, we only hear from Jesus. And, and the fact that Jesus, God's son, is the one sharing this terminal illness-type news to his friends is nothing less than a major plot twist. Uh, if you know the story, it might not feel like that, of course, but if you're reading this for the first time, this is not just a person saying this. This is the son of God who's, who's sharing this type of news. And so it's a, you could say it's a, uh, a beginning of his passion. It's, he's his suffering's starting to happen. Remember, John does not have a Gethsemane passage. This is his Gethsemane passage. If you know what Gethsemane is, that's the garden where he prayed and sweat blood before his arrest. This is his functional Gethsemane passage. And not just this, all the surrounding context. He's beginning to suffer by sharing this news. Like if you think, think about like, uh, I know most of us have not had this experience, but sharing that you're going to die with loved ones and seeing them weep over the news is a type of suffering for the one who's dying. Like, you don't want to hurt the loved one, your loved ones by sharing that you're leaving. And so this is, not, this is not robotic Jesus just sharing facts as always doesn't feel. He's fully human like you and me. And he's also suffering here by sharing this news with them. Again, his passion, passion uh, is Latin for suffering. If you ever get the passion of the Christ, that's what that means. Uh, his passion is already beginning, and ha- has been, but it's, it's um, kicking into high gear here. But then he says uh, one of the more surprising and seemingly backwards things in all of the Gospel of John, which is, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper, referring to the Holy Spirit, will not come to you. And one reason that this is so counterintuitive is because this isn't how we naturally talk to our loved ones, Right? A loving father doesn't say to his kids, it's actually better for you that I die. Like, that's not a common thing you're going to hear in a family. Like, a loving mother is not going to say with a terminal illness, it's actually better for you kids 
that I die. They're going to be like, what are you talking about, you know? Um, I remember reading a short story from someone once who was telling the story of her father's death and how even the thought that he was in a better place, uh, that he was somehow alive in heaven with Jesus, even that wasn't giving her complete peace. Uh, She would stare at his gravestone and say, I just want him back in spirit and body. Something's still wrong. Which is actually what uh, the Christian hope is all about, the resurrection of the body and reunion with our God and our loved ones forever. But circling back to Jesus, this again is what makes Jesus' words so striking. This is how you cheer us up? It's better if you go and it's better if we stay. It's better that we're somehow apart. I think we'd prefer it if you never leave at all. And so their sorrow is appropriate in one sense. They loved him, but their sorrow was also a sign of limited understanding. If Jesus didn't leave, if he didn't die, if he didn't ascend to heaven to be seated at the right hand of God the Father, we would be gravely disadvantaged when it comes to salvation. You you could say we would have absolutely no hope whatsoever. And so to kind of address that question then of like why... Why is it better that Jesus would go? What's, what's the advantage? Um, there's two primary things here that you see in this passage. There are many ways to say this. I'll boil it down. Uh, the first is atonement for sin, which I already kind of alluded to, because his death means life for us. Uh, if, you know, if Jesus is the firefighter that runs into the fire to save us and then dies in the process, though we escape, that's better for us, but not better for him. Did you guys notice that here? When Jesus says, it's better for you that I go, he doesn't say better for him, right? It's not better for him. He's going to suffer. This is classic substitution language here. It's better for you that I depart or that I be arrested, that I suffer, that I die on a cross among criminals. It's better for you, but I know it won't be better for me. I will suffer a tremendous amount for you. But he says that I'm going to put myself before you. This is basically what he's saying. I'm going to put your needs, your betterness, your comfort before, before me. All right, so that's why it's an advantage for us. Advantage for the disciples, for us as readers, versus Christians in the 21st century in this part of the world. It's an advantage that Jesus did this. It's, uh, it's a positive thing. It's a good thing, uh, even though it's laced with sorrow and darkness. The second thing uh, would be the sending of the Spirit, uh, who uh, he calls the helper. John calls the helper. There are other words and names for the Spirit. I talked about those last week a little bit. Um, But it's the sending of the Spirit who would come to us, it says. And we know from elsewhere in Scripture, especially it's implied here, but elsewhere more clearly, that the Spirit would dwell within us. That's key. And I, I think what's helpful here is to remember that at this point in the Bible, at this point, so right here in a place like John 16, we're still in Old Testament territory here. The new is breaking in, but it's not fully here. Until Jesus dies, there is no full establishment of the New Testament. The New Testament did not begin at Christmas. It did not begin at the manger. The Bible itself does not teach that. There's an overlapping of the ages. The new is breaking in. It's near. The Bible says it's at hand Uh, The kingdom of God is at hand, it's close, it's knocking, but it's not fully here until Jesus sheds his blood and dies for sinners and brings people up out of their tombs to to be with their 
creator again and to be back basically in Eden to fully mend all the wrongs of history. So manger Jesus has grown up, but cross Jesus has yet to finish his race here in John 16. And because of that, Jesus' closeness to his disciples here actually isn't as close as he could be. Like thinking very uh, spatially here. Uh, so manger Jesus has grown up. Cross Jesus, though, until that happens, until he dies, there's still some kind of space. Pre-cross Jesus is still some distance away from his disciples. Even if he's talking to them right here in front of them, there's still like 18 inches of space between them. But after he dies for sins and sends the Holy Spirit to dwell within us, the Holy Spirit of God to dwell within us, um, when he does that, there will be no more distance whatsoever. Like there, there's, You can't measure it. There's no space between us and God anymore. Um, and so it's important to know that, that, that God in the Bible, as you guys read the story, God reveals himself incrementally throughout redemptive history, throughout the biblical storyline, starting lesser and moving uh, to greater. It's actually kind of as an aside, uh, in 1 Corinthians 6, um, Paul uses sexual intercourse language here to get at the same idea, that he says, um, if you're a Christian, you are one spirit with Jesus, you, you have this union with him in the same way that a man and a woman have physical oneness when they have sex. It's just kind of crazy, like, it actually tells you a lot about why sex was created in the first place, and there's all kinds of, like, depths to mind there for symbolism and purpose and the beauty of uh, sex and marriage, all that stuff. Um, but the idea is that sexual intercourse and dating are different spatially. Like, when you're dating somebody or are engaged, there's still some space between you physically. But with sexual intercourse, there's no space whatsoever anymore. Like, literally none. And so, or another way to understand it would be, like, just to look at, then, at the epochs of the Old Testament, or the Bible, um, or say, like, the giving of the law itself. Like, when God gave the law, it was an expression of closeness. There was some semblance of goodness in it, but it also, like, drove people away from God, written within the fabrics of the law itself were laws about separation, about how people can't get close, how it was only priests one time a year. Everyone else had to stay away. And so when Jesus came in his earthly ministry, it was better, it was much better than the law because he was touching prostitutes, he was bending, even breaking the law. He was doing things that formerly the law wouldn't allow, but it was also not the final drawing near of history. The Spirit is actually greater than all the things we're reading about with pre-cross Jesus and all the amazing kind of things he was doing, the newness he was bringing. The era of the Spirit is greater because he lives inside us. He's not just right out here in front of us, as amazing as that is. Uh, he actually lives inside us. Jesus' death and resurrection has finally closed the gap. That's why it's to our advantage. If this didn't happen, there would still be separation. When Jesus said it's finished, it actually is finished, uh, in part he means that, there's, that the, the gap between sinners and, and the creator has been fully fixed. And so, therefore then, where, where there's good news for us in this, there's tons of good news. But one of the big places is if we realize that, then we know there's nothing else that needs to be done. If the problem is separation from God, and the solution is Jesus dying on the cross for our sins and sending the Spirit to be within us, even if we don't feel close to God, we are. 
And the pronouncement of the gospel is such that there's nothing else that has to be done. There's no kind of like um, final pushing of the sticky door into the door jam, if you have a door like that in your house. It's like Jesus did 90% of the work, and we have to kind of put our shoulder into to finish it. There's no, the door's shut. It's completely shut, and there's no more work to be done. There's no more distance between a, a believer in Jesus Christ and the God of the universe anymore. That's why he says it's to your advantage. This is the great advantage. The Holy Spirit is the great advantage uh, of, of the ages. All right? Then he says the Spirit, so the Spirit will do that. He also adds, on, t- kind of tacks on some stuff. He says the Spirit will come and prove the world wrong about things. So we talked, I think, a bit about this last week about, like, what is the Holy Spirit's job description, basically? And that's, a, I think, kind of relatively speaking long list, or it's, maybe it's varied or nuanced. So this is one of those things that will be on it. This is one of the kind of the key passages to see where Jesus is saying this Holy Spirit, the helper, will come, and he will convict the world about things. Or um, this translation says, come and prove the world wrong about things. Verse 8 says, when he comes... Uh, he will prove the world wrong about these three things, sin and righteousness and judgment. So I want to walk through these three things and explain what they mean. Actually, Jesus explains them by tacking on uh, something after. So let's just see what he says. Um, he says, concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. All right? That means sin is primarily not believing in Jesus. That's what he's saying. That's what sin is. And this is not about like honest doubts or anything like that, but about just the big picture here, the big picture. A stubborn posture of distrust, resistance, and rejection. Uh, So sin then, you could say, is about trust in the self because to disbelieve in Jesus is to believe in yourself. Uh, It's no shock that in our world today we hear that all the time, like believe in yourself, believe in yourself, believe in yourself. Because here Jesus is saying the Spirit will come and tell the world its definition of sin is wrong. And this is what the definition is. Believing in yourself is the epitome of sin. Trusting in your works. Trusting in just you and what you bring to the table of salvation. The Spirit, the, so, so the ministry of the Spirit is saying, I'm proving the world wrong concerning their definition, their understanding of what the epitome of evil is. Not that we can't have, uh, you know, as human beings outside of Christ, some, some understanding of what is evil. Of course we do. Of course we do. But he's saying, they haven't believed in me. That's what the Spirit's going to say. To not believe in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Uh, it, you know, it, it, sin is, um, is to call religion a crutch in the name of self-sufficiency. That, that's the epitome of, um, uh, of sin. So, it's, so sin is many things, but again, it's primarily a stubborn choice to rebel against God's olive branch of grace. That's what sin is. Uh, so then he moves on. Concerning righteousness, look, look at the qualifier here. Because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And so what, what this means is, again, the world is defining righteousness or goodness wrongly. The world's not understand what goodness is. The world's not understand what it means to be good. And so what Jesus is saying is true righteousness is actually me going to the Father, ascending. It's something we can't do uh, without him. Uh, true righteousness is me, as the Bible says elsewhere. He is the righteousness of God that comes down and saves us and then ascends. That's what righteousness and goodness is. It's him. 
Not in what we do, but it's him. It is not a theoretical life of ours, of, of a possible future, morally, if we just get our stuff together and try harder. Um, to be righteous, the Bible says, is to have faith in Jesus Christ, the ascended one and the one who saves us from our sins. In fact, um, I was reading this this past week from Micah 5, uh, kind of, I guess, because I was feeling Christmassy, I guess, because uh, Micah 5 is one of the most Christmassy passages, or Christ, oft-quoted Christmas passages in the Old Testament, which is about the Messiah being born in Bethlehem. If you guys have read this before, Micah 5 too. But in that passage, it says, quote, uh, or it says, a time is coming, or about that time, when the star, is, the star of Bethlehem comes and Jesus is born in Bethlehem, about that time that, that, quote, no longer will we bow down to the works of our hands. That's what Christmas was all about. Jesus would, Jesus would come, the Son of God would come, and no longer, by way of his coming, would we bow down to what we had done, the works of our hands. One of the great promises and hopes of Christmas, then, is that God would come to save us from thinking highly of ourselves. That God would come to save us from worshiping the good that we do, the works of our hands, which is the epitome of idolatry. And instead, that he would give us a son, a baby born in a manger, and would say, this is what you need. You need me to come and to be born in a lowly manger, in this mean estate, like we just sung about in, in, the, in the carol, in this mean estate, among the germs and the animal hair and the straw and, and the disgusting environment. Like, we need God to sort of come into that state for us. Basically, we're, we're, the, we're, we're the manger. We're, we're the germs. Our sin is. But he came into that to wear it, to bear it, uh, so that later we can be exonerated, fully lifted. That's why I said before, his death means our life, right? Then concerning judgment uh, as well, because the ruler of this world is judged. So notice Jesus' qualification again of what it means for the spirit to prove the world wrong and what it believes judgment really is. Like what is justice? What is true judgment? So Jesus is saying that the spirit will come and he will say judgment is not what you think it is. Judgment has more to do with the ruler of this world being judged. That's what judgment is. I'll prove the world wrong in their, in their definition of judgment because judgment is the ruler of this world uh, being, being judged, which I think is a layered meaning here. In one sense, the ruler of this world is the devil. Uh, we know that very clearly and definitionally from other parts of the Bible. Um, and, so, and we know that's why Jesus came. In uh, the book of 1 John, it says that Jesus came to destroy the works of the devil. That's one of the principal reasons why he came into the world. The devil had works. He was doing something. He was deceiving the nations. And Jesus came to destroy his works. But in another sense, uh, Jesus is the ruler of the world, Right? I mean, how else, can he, how else uh, could this be truly understood, uh, ultimately? Because he is the creator. It's his world. Uh, he is actually no, he's being uh, defined as a king at this point, uh, coming into the, the world that he made and, 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 who, is, uh, and who is reclaiming it uh, for his own. And so therefore, then it would be, the other layer to this would be, it's his own judgment on the cross at the hands of sinners, authorities, law, public opinion, and the devil himself that brings about this great reversal. Uh, that being, it's through his crucifixion that judgment upon the devil 
and the rulers of the world is like fully brought down. But layers aside, don't bury the lead here. The Spirit announces that judgment has come upon someone else other than you. Uh, there's grace in that. Ultimately, it's Christ. Or even if, if the layer is the devil, um, don't miss the big idea here. The, 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 um, the era of the Spirit, the era of the New Testament is saying, the pronouncement, what is judgment? Uh, the fact that it's not like on us is insanely backwards and unfair. We deserve it. We deserve the justice. We deserve the hell. But for, for Jesus to say, the Spirit's going to come and prove that wrong, prove you wrong when you, when you think that, even though that's true, it's going to prove the ultimate reality of that wrong to say that the ruler of this world, the devil's going to be destroyed, but the ruler of the world, Christ himself, will be judged in our place, will be poured out upon by the wrath of God. That's what judgment is. For those who believe then, we're, we're free we have, like Romans 8.1 says, there, there's no um, condemnation anymore for those who believe in Christ Jesus. That, that's, that is a legal, like, um, courtroom term there. There's no condemnation. There's, there's no verdict uh, anymore, you know, against us. That's incredible, right? This is, again, so whatever your view on who is the leader of the world, it actually doesn't matter as much as that last line there. Judgment, this is Christianity. This is what Christ brings, what the Spirit brings. Judgment's coming upon someone else. And it's unfair. It shouldn't happen. It's a scandal of the ages. But it happens nonetheless. And so that's a grace to those of you who feel uh, judged or full of guilt or shame or canceled or bullied or manipulated and just unable to stop. If that's you, if you just can't stop, whatever it is, if you just can't stop, uh, there's grace for you in this. Judgment is, if you believe in Jesus, judgment is not coming upon you. If you're a Christian or not, uh, if you're not believing in Jesus, this will be true too. But I'm just saying for all of you, if we just can't stop it, like Paul says in Romans 7, the good I, I know as a Christian, the good I know I want to do, I just can't do it. And the evil I know I shouldn't do, I can't stop doing who will set me free from that body of death? What's the answer? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ my Lord. That's the answer. But this is like that, that kind of like um, almost, cursed is probably too strong of a word, but it feels that way sometimes. A cursed, like almost um, split personality kind of Christian existence that we have, you know, sometimes. Uh, we're... Um, simultaneously, the, the famous kind of Latin phrase is simul justice et peccator. We're, we're simultaneously right with God and sinful. Uh, this is a classic reform principle. We're both. Um, all kinds of bad theology comes from just leaning into one alone. And so, you know, the reformers were like, we need both simultaneously righteous, as Christians, righteous and sinners. We, we have two identities there. And it explains our reality better, explains scripture places like Romans 7. But concerning all of these things, concerning judgment, the grace then for those of us as Christians who are in some sense finding change and victory and newness, but in other senses, you're the same old you. The good news of the gospel is there's no judgment anymore except that is which is poured out upon Christ. Judgment's been, it's gone around you, circumvented you, and has been poured out on the Son of God willingly in love for you. Uh, not you now, 
not you tomorrow, and not you when Jesus comes back and there's that final judgment. You don't have to fear because of what Jesus has done for you and because you're not saved and kept saved by your works. If you graduate from the gospel to a law-keeping ideology, um, you will not only be fearful and anxious now, um, how can you trust in the future um, if the fullness of Christ is not your only hope? Um, that this is, this is the battle of the mind. This is um, the task, I would say, for Christians, you know, is to grow in that. Uh, that's how we find maturity, is firmly putting the helmet of salvation, Paul says, on our head uh, to, to withstand the, the lies and the attacks and... Um, and to grow in grace throughout our days. All right, and then last, he says, until then, you cannot bear these things. Let me read verses 12 again. He says, and following, I still have many things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. When the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you in all the truth, for he will not speak in his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak, and he will declare to you the things that are to come. He will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. All that the Father has is mine. Therefore, I said that he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Okay, so on one level, this is simply Jesus saying that when the Spirit comes, he will reveal even more to you. He's saying this to his disciples. When the Spirit comes after I die, um, the Spirit will reveal more things to you, things that you cannot bear or understand at this time. This has been a big theme in John so far, if you've noticed that. Um, the idea that understanding comes after the cross, not before. Like, if I asked you guys to think of one person in the Bible, uh, humanly speaking, so not Jesus, obviously, but um, one person who, understand, who understood things fully before Jesus died. One person who clearly got all the answers, figured out everything, knew exactly what it meant that Jesus was going to die, we would all be looking for the rest of our life, right? There's no such person in the New Testament, narratively speaking. And so it's been a big theme for John to kind of acknowledge this for the readers, which is kind of helpful, um, even though we are in the side of the cross, uh, just to understand, like almost to smell the air a bit with the disciples, uh, that understanding comes after the cross, not before. Um, and this kind of just as a quick aside, this is um, one of the most helpful things you can know about reading the Bible, that understanding what the Bible means is only possible through the cross, uh, if we try to understand apart from the gospel, there is no meaning. It's meaning that we manufacture maybe, we think is there, but there is no other meaning apart from the cross, whether implicit or explicit, whether suggested, anticipatory things, or like the actual realities themselves. You think These are things the Bible, the Bible says and shows all over the place uh, it's, itself. And what Jesus is kind of getting at here. And so if we try to understand the Bible apart from the death and resurrection of Jesus, we will always fail we won't be able to see, we'll stay blind, we'll stay deaf. But Jesus' sufferings are the key to unlocking its own meaning. And the disciples are a living parable of this idea right here in John 16. They're a living parable of this playing out right before our eyes. They just don't understand. They can't bear it. Um, they, they have limited understanding. They know he's going to die, but they're sorrowful. And part of their sorrow is, they, they, though part of it's justifiable, part of it's like limited understanding. So that's like a one level, kind of just on a human level, kind of a matter-of-fact level. I think that's, when, that's what's going on. But on another, like more spiritual level, the fact that Jesus talks about not being able to bear something in the wake of his own death and triumphant resurrection is, I don't think, any accident uh, whatsoever. Uh, the word bear is actually 
the same word used in John 19, 17, where it says, and he went out bearing his own cross to the place called the place of his skull, uh, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. Uh, Elsewhere, Jesus says, remember earlier in the gospel where he says in John 13, um, where I'm going, speaking of his death, you cannot now come. Uh, So Jesus is kind of doubling down here in a way, or at least John the author is insinuating this, uh, where Jesus is distancing himself from the disciples uh, in the work of salvation. Um, To say uh, they can't bear the truth is to say uh, they can't bear their own sins. Those two things are related for John. They are related. To not being able to bear the truth, to bear Christ, to bear these things at at this point in history is akin to saying they cannot bear their own sins. Um, Linguistically, theologically, contextually, uh, they go together. They just fit. Also, the phrase, uh, take what is mine, I think is really interesting too. Um, It says, the Spirit will take from Jesus and give to us. Again, primarily referring to truths and revelations about the gospel, but the phrase itself, in classic John fashion, becomes another symbol of the gospel. That is... On the cross, Jesus is being taken from. Jesus is willingly giving himself to us, but he's nonetheless losing something. His life, his blood, his comfort. And we are gaining. We are being given to. Uh, it's sort of like last Friday when Aletha and I were doing some, uh, Chris- some like last-minute Christmas shopping for our kids. Um, these stores just kept taking money from us, you know. Uh, which is that which is ours um, so that we might give to our kids. The, the willingness and love was there. Uh, we were willing to, to give that, obviously. Um, even it, but, but even as we were being taken from and as we were intending the, the love and the generosity, we were being stripped in a way, nonetheless. We were becoming a little poorer that our kids might gain from our sacrifice. Do you understand? You guys have all had this maybe this week too. That's just a glimpse. The reality is found in Christ, and the Spirit helps us understand these things. Uh, When you look at the list of sin, righteousness, and judgment, I mean, those are are big concepts, right? You you could argue that uh, they're very all in. I was reading one commentator, actually, who said, our definition of those terms is really like worldview setting. It, it, It is like, what is like good and evil? What is justice and injustice? It's those kind of questions. These are like big, you know, big like definitions, big like worldview setting kind of kinds of things. And Jesus takes them right on. The Spirit takes them right on. But the idea is that sin, righteousness, and judgment, they're all defined in relation to Jesus. Sin is not believing in him. Righteousness is him. Judgment's poured out on him. They're all, without Jesus, we have no good clue about what these things are. We might be able to grasp a little bit, kind of understand, uh, piece some things together. You know, obviously, uh, uh, someone who's not a Christian yet will probably say something's evil that a Christian will as well, and so there'll be alignment there. So there's obviously that too. But setting all that aside, at the end of the day, you can only go so far without Jesus. And, and the Spirit is saying, this is what these terms really mean. There's, and there's actually good news The sin one is bad news, obviously, but it's realigning. It brings us to Christ. It says, don't just stop doing bad. It says, believe in the Son. If sin is not believing in the Son, then what are you going to, 
well, this is so simple, right? I don't mean to make it this simple, but theoretically, what are you going to do? Like, you're going to believe in the Son then, and so that, that's why it's good. But with righteousness and judgment, there's good news in that. To be good is not to be good. To be good is to believe in Jesus. To be righteous is to have faith, not to do good. Though as good as doing good is, that's great. But to be righteous and clean before God is to be in Christ. And then judgment peace we talked about. So um, that's what I think the final word is here, as, as it always is. And I want to leave you guys with this Christmas season. Um, what this is saying is our responses matter. Uh, our definitions, you know, we're, we're not saved by what we do, we don't, nor do we stay saved by what we do, but only by our response to Jesus. And again, let me use those three words here to summarize. Jesus is the righteousness of God, judged in our place, that we might be saved from the sin of disbelief. That's why he came. That was his MO, that was his mission. That's why he came into the world to fulfill the scriptures, why he came not just to be born, but to die. It explains why just being born isn't the full good news yet. There's no advantage if he doesn't depart and go away and die a criminal's death. There's no Christianity. There's no hope. So he died in a way in the manger, or was born in a way in the manger to mimic his, uh, his later death. Um, but without his death, Without the sin of the Spirit, there is no full connection with the divine again. There's no union. There's still a little bit of distance. Let me pray. Father, thank you for um, this passage, for what it means for us today, the, uh, this Christmas season, any day, um, that Jesus, you were born to die. You were born to die. You were born to save, uh, as the carol says, save the sons of earth um, but as this passage clearly says, it's, it was to our advantage that you go away, but it was not to your advantage. Um, for the joy set before you, the scriptures say, you endured the cross. The joy was there. The end game, you knew. You trusted your father, Jesus, to raise you from the dead. It was done. And yet, it was not to your advantage, your immediate advantage. You experienced the, the torture, the discomfort, the hell on the cross to save the sons of hell, like us. Um, that's, without you, that, that's who we are. And in, in a way, uh, that, that's our story. It'll always be our story that we remember, that we live out. Um, but God, I pray for myself, everyone here. Uh, God, give us deep rest. Calm us down. Help us to sit down at your feet and to listen and enjoy you, uh, to celebrate the gift that you are. Uh, every gift that is given, um, this next weekend is, is a whisper of the gift that you are. That God, you're generous, you're a giver, and good gift givers don't ask anything in return. But you don't, you, that's the same with Jesus. You don't ask anything except to receive. Just accept the gift. And grace really is that. And it's crazy that the God of the universe who made everything and who has sinned against at such a high level has that kind of posture towards us now. Um, but God, help us to sing and respond and be with us this week. In Christ we pray. Amen.